Welcome everybody to the PFF College Football Podcast. I'm your host, Seth Galina, and um, on today's episode, we had the great uh, friend of a podcast, uh, Alex Kirshner on from Split Zone Duo, from Slade, from 538, from all these places to come on and give us a little, um, give me and Deontay a little um, rundown, I guess you would say, of kind of the history of the pay for college, pay college football players movement and how that works and how it's not really like, even though like this current um uh, installment of the pay college football players that has that has kind of worked out with the uh, signings of all the NIL bills recently it's not the first time that this has ever happened and and it, it kind of goes back throughout history um, so we got to talk about that and then we just went into college football um, just a great off-season episode of talking about some guys talking about our favorite college football teams and players from our favorite teams from our non-favorite teams um, over the course of our lifetime so um, if you want to listen and hear um, um, names of some dudes uh, that you haven't heard in a while um this episode is for you so excited for you guys to listen to it and uh, don't forget the college football preview magazine is out on pff.com 7.99 if you have a subscription to the college football grades or pff edge i believe um so go get that um we worked super super hard on that me and uh, anthony trash will be back next week um so yeah go get it and uh i hope you like it and i hope you like this episode we now welcome to the show, I believe uh, for his third time on the podcast, Mr. Alex Kirshner, host of the Split Zone Duo podcast, among many other things, and a and 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 the, a true a true friend of the podcast. Alex, what's going on? Seth, Deontay, it's a, a pleasure to be with you. Can't imagine two better gents to talk about football with. And, and the feeling is the feeling is mutual. Um, so we wanted to get into we're going to have a very light conversation about our favorite college football things of all time or of, of our lifetimes, I guess. But we, we want to start with some news about um, the NIL decisions that have happened and the fallout um, that's come from them. But really f- with you, because you've done so much, you know, research and and, and studying up on the history of college football. My first question to you is like, how long ago did this kind of movement start? Like, obviously, this particular movement, maybe five, 10 years ago, but has there been a pay the players movement before this that just that kind of, you know, uh, uh, just petered out before? Has this come up a lot throughout the history of college football? Like, what's the deal here? So people in college football have been trying to pay players and players in college football have been trying to get paid for as long roughly as college football has existed. And I think that that probably tracks a lot of industries where the labor is not allowed to be paid above the table. It finds ways to get paid. And I think that college football is no exception. There have been a lot of instances going back as far as like 1900, 1901, 1902, where you would have issues of like a a Harvard and Yale game falling into a big dispute over whether or not a player was a professional athlete because they had once been paid to teach gym at a secondary school, uh, and then they go and play. That in sounds a Harvard like the NCAA for me. Harvard Harvard did this with a player named Oliver Cutts, and Walter Camp got very pissed about it. It was a whole thing. Um, I think that as as far as an organized movement to pay players, it's happened on a couple of different fronts. There, it is true that as far back as like 1950 or so, there were seven schools that basically told the NCAA, screw it, 
we are not going to follow your rules against paying players. These schools became called the Sinful Seven, uh, and a couple of colleagues and I actually wrote a book about that, which you can read at sinful7.com, where they just stood up and and declined to follow the NCAA's rules. The NCAA tried to expel them but didn't have the votes, and ever since then, you've sort of had – uh, some renegade factions within the NCAA that have tried to push the limits of what you're allowed to do with players and what you're not. I think that this movement to pay athletes or to allow athletes to be paid by third parties for the use of their name, image, and likeness has really gained a lot of steam just in the last 10 years. I think it's a relatively recent thing. If you look back as far as like 2010, when Cam Newton's dad allegedly, <clears throat> allegedly, <laughs> Uh, charged a hefty fee uh, or attempted to for his son's college football services, it was kind of considered at the time to be like a bad thing that Cam Newton's family allegedly did. Like if you remember in that Iron Bowl in 2010, uh, which Alabama fans would very much like to forget, they had uh, played during warmups. They had played that song, Take the Money and Run. Like they held up signs. They called them like Scam Newton and they put dollar signs next to his name. And that that was like a got you. Like that was considered like, wow, like we really zinged this guy. It's really embarrassing that he may have been compensated to play football. I think it started to change around like 2013 to 2015. There were some high profile cases. You remember Johnny Manziel was one of them uh, where he was, uh, I think, trying to take some money for autographs. Todd Gurley, who at the time in 2014 or 15 was like the Heisman frontrunner and got popped by the NCAA over something as stupid as autographs. I think people started to see those cases and be like, why on earth are we caring about this? Like, why does this matter? This is the most basic thing in the world and like everyone else can do it. And even if, you know, even if you, you couldn't, it just didn't feel very consequential. And I think that like on as the media dynamics have changed over the last five or 10 years, it's just become something that is no longer viewed as the scandal it was once viewed at. Like, I don't think either of you see college athletes getting paid as any kind of scandal. I think you see it as a good thing. And so do I. And it's a huge sea change from where we were even 10 years ago, uh, 10-ish years ago when the Nevin Shapiro stuff at Miami came out. And it was like this huge scandal that this booster at Miami was just splashing cash all over the program. If that happened today, like, I think a lot of people who have pretty big platforms would just kind of shrug and say, oh, well, you may didn't give them more. So it's just a, a totally different media dynamic, public dynamic around this. I don't think it's been one, you know, organization pushing forward. I mean, college athletes do not have a union. They have very little national organization. I just think that attitudes have changed uh, and the way people view the issue has changed. And as a result, political pressure kind of gradually has has ratcheted up on the NCAA to make some changes here. So what I find so interesting about that, you know, I was actually kind of Googling some things as you were talking because I wanted to make sure I had the timeline right. Uh, But what you mentioned follows exactly kind of how I went from being, I guess, maybe kind of just like a shrug of the shoulders. I didn't really care, you know, how if guys got compensated or not to becoming like a staunch supporter of the idea of at least college athletes being able to maximize their name, image, and likeness. And it probably really does start with Cam Newton, because I remember the week going into the SEC championship game and all of the fallout. And I can just remember as a high school kid thinking, well, if we put everything else down, is it good for the sport if the Heisman, if the obvious Heisman winner does not get a chance to participate in the SEC title game and maybe not the national championship game because of this allegation? So that was kind of where it started. And then I remember the Ed O'Bannon class action lawsuit 
And then we had, as you mentioned, the Todd Gurley autograph scandal, the Johnny Manziel autograph scandal, um, and then Northwestern trying to get unionized, Northwestern players trying to lead the charge on getting college players unionized around that time as well. And I just remember all those events happening one after another, and then really kind of coming to, you know, a crescendo with your colleague, Stephen Godfrey's piece in work around Ole Miss and Mississippi State and all of those issues. And by the end of it, you know, on a certain level, beyond however I may feel about it, you know, politically or economically, I just thought that it was just such a dumb idea that we were spending all this time in collegiate sports trying to police where these dollars are going. Um, and the more you hear from the NCAA, I think the more it reinforces how you feel if that's the stance that you take. Um, so it, it has been very interesting over the last decade. I've talked to people, you know, people who are family or family friends who in the beginning, when I was a college athlete, thought it was the craziest idea in the world that a player will be getting paid. And now they're like, oh, it was only $10,000 that they're alleging. That's a blue chip prospect. I would have thought it would have been X, Y, and Z amount of money, you know? So we have definitely softened our stance culturally about how we approach these issues. It's been one of the few things that I think generates cross ideological agreement in America today. You just saw it at the Supreme Court. Not a lot of cases, not a ton of cases, get nine, nothing rulings in the Supreme Court, uh, but this kind of loosely related NCAA case, the Austin case, where the NCAA was trying to get basically a green light to make whatever rules it wants without getting sued um, on athlete compensation. And everyone from Clarence Thomas to Sonia Sotomayor was like, nope, not doing right. that. Uh, and you've seen the same thing in Congress. You've seen it in various state legislatures with governors ranging from like Ron DeSantis to Gavin Newsom. And it's like, there, there's not a lot that we really agree on in this country today, the royal we, the big royal we, but it does feel like the general issue of NCAA policy, NCAA amateurism is becoming one of those things. It is crazy to me how quickly, I mean, it's been 10 years-ish, but like how quickly our views have changed. And like, I would just, you know, I, 10 years ago, I was like a, you know, in my early 20s. So like, what, are, what did I know about anything? But like, I didn't, you know, it was like, oh, okay, the, the NCAA propaganda machine was was putting its full weight on me. And it's like, oh, this is just normal. Like, of course, like, yeah, we should pay them, but it's not a big, you know what I mean? Like, oh, and you're trying to fit both sides. Like, oh, but they get a scholarship, blah, blah, blah. And like, and it's like, you you know, not that much long after that, it's like, I've gone the complete opposite direction. And there was a really good article on the Washington Post, which quoted uh, your, um, your split zone, uh, host uh, Richard Johnson and our friend, you know, talking about how, you know, the article is about how the ideas have flipped and how like the, how the media has talked about paying players and, and how the NCAA works has changed dramatically and how we, we love, we're such a gossipy scandalous type of uh, uh, culture, you know, I mean, I, I live in Canada, but it's the same thing where it's like, oh, we loved the Nevin Shapiro case because it was it was gossipy. It was like, oh my God, can you believe this happened? We loved all those cases. Um, you know, the 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 Nike shoes stuff in the basketball realm. Like we love that stuff. Um, because it's like who we are as a culture. But yeah. it, it takes some time to like take a step back and say, okay, well, we like this stuff, but it's not helping anybody. And one of the things that I always that I've been thinking about recently is, and I think this is true whenever a, 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 an important law gets changed, it's like you look about the people whose lives, like it's, it's real, man. The people whose lives were ruined, and, and the first thing that, name that pops in my head is is Maurice Claret, like the people whose lives were ruined because of bogus bogus rules. 
You know, uh-huh. I think Clarette, I should look this up, but Clarette was like, a, he got a free tattoo. Am I making that up? It was some ticky tack thing. thing. So it's like, yeah. you know, and it, and, it, and it ruined his ability to make to make a living or or he should have had money even before that point, you know, in the, the yeah. year and a half or two year, or, or year that he was at Ohio State. So I think about those guys and, and how awful, you know, it, how much better their lives could have been. Absolutely. And it, Maurice Claret's a great example. He was robbed above board by these NCAA rules. Uh, he didn't have much and he wound up turning to like actual bad things uh, right. with actual victims to try to, you know, cause that's right. what he thought he had to do to right. make ends meet. And it wasn't his fault. I mean, it was a system. I mean, obviously we could have a long debate about personal responsibility and all yeah. of that, but it, it was a, let's do it right now. That's <laughs> it right here on the show. But it was set up by an unjust system uh, in which he could have made a lot of money and had a very comfortable life, but he wasn't allowed to. And it's, it is in a way really upsetting that, he didn't come around 20 years later so that he could enjoy a slightly more just system slightly because i, I still don't think we're all the way there right. but uh he, he was a man before his time is there like so since it's been it's july 7 so it's been you know about a week since the the laws came into effect has it been um overwhelming for you guys to see how much it's like how quickly i mean obviously all these athletes had deals ready to go you know before like you know july 1st obviously that was going to happen but it's like the the breadth and the depth of which these all these athletes are getting a chance now we're seeing like entire offensive linemen being sponsored by like barbecue places um you know i saw miami has a booster who's going to spend like fifty thousand sorry fifty five hundred thousand dollars or something like that like have have, has that surprised you like did you think it was going to be this big this fast this quickly uh, Miami having the booster throwing the most money around absolutely does not surprise me. <laughs> I think if we were going to guess which school would have a booster who would say, I'm going to offer a few thousand bucks to everyone on the team right off the bat, uh, 99 out of a hundred people, we probably would have correctly guessed the U. Uh, right. and that's why, that's why we, that's why we love you. The U. Um, but I'm not too surprised by it. I, I think that it's like, if you looked at this ahead of time, you would have figured that there'd be a lot of deals out there. You probably would have figured that there'd be a rush right at the beginning. I will be curious to see like where the market winds up. Uh, you know, these players right now, I think that the vast majority of the deals that we've seen signed, we're talking like a couple hundred bucks, if that. Like these are right. for the most part not like earth shattering deals, but that doesn't mean they're not important to the people making them. Like we, you know, when I was in college, I would have loved to have made 150 bucks sending a tweet or an Instagram post. That would have really like changed my my week to month, um, and it would have been a really good thing for me. So we'll see. I have some questions about where this will ultimately go. Um, like I think if I have any sources of skepticism, it's kind of about the the check cashing companies, if you will, that have positioned themselves between athletes and potential sponsors. Um, And also like how universities are going to meddle in this. I've got some questions about that. You know, obviously hope that schools are doing what they can to educate players about uh, the tax consequences of of these deals and things like that. Cause it's another thing that I don't think I would have been mindful of at all in, in college. So I don't think so far it's been overwhelming at all. I think that there are a few lingering questions and we will see how they shake out, but how they shake out is can't be worse than what it was where you had an incredibly unjust thing going on. Uh, And I'm sure that there will be some people who will probably wind up getting into bad deals and will get hurt because 
That's what happens when you have free markets, but it's still better than not being allowed to make money at all. Right. Yeah, I would say that I'm I'm not much I'm not much surprised by what we've seen lately and I, I definitely would not use overwhelmed as a word. Um, you know, this is something said that you and I and a few other people have had conversations about. Uh, I always was of the belief that there would be an ecosystem that could very easily translate itself to offering, you know, sponsorships or, and things of that nature to players, you know, for visibility purposes. Some things, you know, you may chuckle at, you know, guys showing up, you know, where fireworks and stuff are being sold and selling autographs. Like you may get a, a brief chuckle out of that just thinking of the circumstance. But as you said, Alex, all of these things are good things because the market did not exist at all, you know, before before the day it was allowed. So I'm happy to see that players are taking two you know, taking these NIL deals, as you said, there are going to be inevitably some things that are not perfect, some things that put people in position where there may be some negative tax implications, where maybe guys don't get paid out the way that they did, where maybe contracts have longer durations or, you know, different types of splits in terms of what you do get paid for over how much time and things like that, that will be problematic. But as you as you mentioned, Alex, that is kind of the nature of you know, opening up the market at all. And, and I would take that over not having one um, in the first place. And my biggest concern is going to be how the universities react. You know, I, I'm, it's not, it was never my thought. You know, I, I always dismissed out of hand the idea that Under Armour would try to show up to a kid that plays at a Nike school and say, hey, where are cleats? We'll pay you an exorbitant amount of money. It's mm -hmm. just the context, the context of college sports and the way that these sponsorships and endorsement deals work at that level, it, it does not allow for those types of things in the first place. So that's not my concern so much. It's going to be, hey, you know, the $100 million local company that really wants to get involved with some of these players, is the university going to try to wedge out some players and make them play ball first with the university before they can start playing, you know, it's before they can start handing out money to players, you know, for their name, image, and likeness. So that's really what... I'm most interested in, you know, over the next five, seven, eight years, because it's not something I think that we're going to get immediate returns on. Yeah, I think it's, it's a great point. And I, I have a lot of similar questions about how schools are going to act. They've sort of started to telegraph this and some of it's been prescribed by state laws that say, you know, you can't be involved in this industry or that, you know, mm -hmm. you've, you've, BYU, I think in their honor code, yeah. they banned the big five, which was, uh, <laughs> Porn, gambling, alcohol, drugs, and coffee. Coffee, yeah. the greatest sin um, of all. <laughs> Caffeine. Uh, so you know they've. I, I might. I might be messing up one of the other ones. But anyway, the big five. That's the big five. And you know it'll be interesting to see. Like, do athletes get in trouble because they push a little farther than school policies, NCAA policies, state laws say they can. I'm sure that someone will. I mean, someone is going to do something with like a beer at some point, right? right. Like or with it, the it dispensary feels, and, you know, right. it, there's going to be yeah. something like that. Like it, it feels inevitable that at some point someone is going to try that and that will be a new test case and we'll see what happens. Uh, and more power to them, in my opinion, especially because, you know, right now, uh, gambling being a great example, like that's where the money is flying around in sports right now. Like we've got this new burgeoning industry, a couple of sports books throwing money like at everybody who has any kind of platform whatsoever you know like uh, we're gonna see some athletes probably want to get in on that and might try to do it at some point i think that that one is a tough one because it kind of creates competitive integrity concerns and so you know pro athletes in a large in large part do not partner with those companies anyway but it's a lot a lot is kind of up in the air in that regard for me
Okay, so Alex, you are from Pittsburgh and you went to the University of Maryland, correct? Guilty and guilty. Uh, Deontay, you are from San Diego. You went to Sac State. Correct. Um, I'm from Montreal. I went to Concordia University. Uh, what, either from your, your home city or from where you went to school, what like place would you have loved to be sponsored by? You know, I might have wanted to be sponsored by Mrs. T's pierogies in Pittsburgh because, <laughs> you know, I love potatoes and I think that you've got to be true to yourself. You know, I'm not going to be a good pitch man for a product that I haven't used. So I've certainly used those pierogies. That's a good one. So I was I was actually racking my brain about, do I want to approach this as the 28-year-old degenerate I am or how I would have felt <laughs> as the 18-year-old degenerate I was? So I think the 18-year-old me would have loved a jack-in-the-box partnership. You know how popular mm. I would be on a college campus <laughs> with those two tacos for 99 cent deals that I can make for free, you know? <laughs> now I would be the I would have been the greatest person in the dorm room ever with that type of thing. Um and now as an adult, I probably would love nothing more than Ballast Point or Stone Brewing, you know, or Rubio's, Rubio's Fresh Mexican Grill, you know, same deal, tacos, beers. All that sounds like a great, great idea to me. Yeah, could be you, bad at you've, that. You've clearly grown in the ten years since. Uh, right. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Uh, I mean, this is going to go over most people's heads, but I'll say like La Belle Province here in uh, in uh, in Quebec because it's like, like it's hot dogs. Like I just want you know you want an easy place, hot dogs and fries. You know, like the the and the, the good fries where it's like, um, potato deep fry and like there's some skin still on the fries. They're not like McDonald's fries where like perfectly mm-hmm. cut every time. Like this, mm-hmm. that, these are the but these are the fries you want. So mm-hmm. I'm going to La Belle Province here in uh, Quebec. All right. We're going to get into this, this very light topics that, that I presented to you guys before we, um, before we started um, talking about our, in a sense, our journeys through loving and watching college football. Uh, so the first thing I want to ask you guys is which outdated offense would you have loved to either play in or like coach now or like coach then or, or whatever? Like, what is that offense that you're like, man, I, I kind of just loved it just aesthetically. Like, it doesn't have to be like, oh, well, this is the best offense because it's super efficient, blah, blah, blah. Just like aesthetically, like what is the offense that just that, that makes your brain smile? Well, for me, the answer is different if it's playing or coaching okay. in that offense. I think that if I'm a player, I might want that real uncut air raid that Leach and How Mummy were running in like 1989 in a community college in Iowa. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you guys have you guys read The Perfect Pass? It's the book that uh, follows How Mummy during that time. Very good book, recommended, especially for some nerds like you guys. You'd probably enjoy it too. But it talks about like the the ways that. Uh, Leech and Mummy didn't even really like to have their players like run sprints. It's like you, we don't want to have you be tired doing that. Um, you know, it, it was just like th- there was very little contact in practice, and they just would do these kind of very, very Mike Leach air raid things because Leach was sort of helping to develop the offense. Like you know, they ran three plays. You know, it was like four verts and Y cross and maybe one other, and uh, they like the offensive lineman would stand like five feet apart because you're just trying to create long pass rushing routes to the QB so that you don't have time to get there, even if you don't get touched as a pass rusher. Uh, That would be really fun to play in, I feel like, because the physical effort is like, there's not too many things to like, you know, have to sprint out. There's only a couple plays you have to learn. Uh, I think that if I was a coach, 
I would like the single wing because it's not my head that's getting destroyed. Uh, so that would be fun. All right, I, I like that. Um, just skirting all responsibility. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> uh, no, never mind. I was going to make a joke that one of our colleagues, Justice Mosqueda, makes, but I don't know if he would like to hear that one. Uh, <laughs> for me, playing and coaching, I think that there's nothing that looks more aesthetically pleasing to me than like a perfectly executed triple option. That is still like just the peak uh, of like offensive football in terms of every piece being, you know, in concert, in unison, quote unquote, the defense can never be right. You know, all, all of those types of things. That, that's probably what I'm drawn to the most. A close second would definitely be the single wing. The idea that like we're just going to hold on to the ball for literally as long as humanly possible. And we're just going to headbutt you over and over and over and over. And one of us is going to tap out, you know, but we won't know until the end of the game. Um, that that's very that's very aesthetically pleasing to you know meathead me as well. I also think you know the single wing is interesting just from a, like obviously you've had to play against it Deontay as a coach and it's like that you're always thinking about the offenses that are like tough to to deal with and that single wing always comes up in these discussions. Can you explain? Can you can you go into a little like? A little spiel on like why the single wing is is um, still still an important offense in, in at least high school football because it removes it removes any ability for the defensive coach to be a genius like there's no <laughs> there's no master defense for it there's no awesome blitz there's no shutdown coverage there's none of that it is we are just going to be making contact with one another all game long and whichever whichever team is tougher is the one that's going to come out on top so from that perspective it's tough right because that as as a coach it removes some of you know the illusion of control that you like to believe that you have over the outcome of the game um and it puts a lot more of that into the players hands than i think any coach would would like so that's probably why i dislike it the most you know and, and on a certain level like how do you prepare for that the, the chances are, if you see something like the single wing, it's probably just like the triple, probably only one team that you're going to see all year that does it. They probably run it, you know, as one of like the top 10 teams in the country that do it, you know, and mm -hmm. they're, they're very well, you know, they're very well polished. They probably have good athletes because they're so good at it. They're probably a successful school. So now good players want to go play for those places. You know, it, it's it's a headache on so many levels. Uh, yeah, I also think there's a sweet spot. Like mis misdirection is important for every offense, but there's certainly like a sweet spot in that high school level um, where defensive players can get confused a lot easier. So oh, I think yeah. that's why the single wingers. Going to, going back to the air raid stuff you're talking about, you're I, I probably might have said this as my answer had 2020 not happened, and like the bad taste in my mouth that I have from watching Mississippi State this past year um you know what i mean yes because like yes I, I'm, I'm like i'm on board and and especially like if you would ask me this question 10 years ago i would have 100 percent said the air raid because it was still r relatively new on a national stage and it was like that's what offense is how offense has made sense to me my answer is going to be in that triple option vein it's going to be the wishbone specifically and you know like when i and it's funny because when i think about that offense i'm like you know, you you have the wishbone. It, it's a super fun offense to watch. You know, you watch those old Oklahoma teams, Texas teams, etc. But like, you know, efficiently, efficiency-wise, 
you should just break it and run to flex mode. But you know what I mean? Because then sure. now you can run some, uh, you know, motions, more motions, and you have two guys who are who can be receivers rather than two guys who are seven yards back in the backfield. Yeah. And then I think of that, and I'm like, well, you can be, even be more efficient than that and, like, have those two wings be actual slot receivers. And I'm in, like, Utah's offense from, from Urban Meyer days. You know what I mean? I'm like, but, like, so, like, I, I, every time I think about it, my mind just keeps going spreadier and spreadier. But I, I still think there's something aesthetically pleasing about those old uh, wishbone teams. I think some something has to do with the back, literal backfield alignment. Like, the angles are, mm-hmm. like, perfect for viewing pleasure so I'm yeah. gonna say the uh, I'm gonna say the wishbone for my uh, for my answer, and I wish some team would bring it back. But like I said, it just not it just doesn't seem like an efficient way to to get the job. You know what I would love? I would love to see a great a great program like an Alabama or Georgia break out the old Maryland eye in a short yardage <laughs> situation. Like put two defensive tackles as the fullbacks and your best athlete as a running back, and just mash people. I would love to see that. My, my, I think, my old NCAA 2004 playbook, basically. Literally, like I can hear Lee Corso's voice in my head right now as I say this. I think that on the two points, on the Mississippi State point from last year, they did almost ruin the air raid completely for me. Yeah. Um, I think that you guys had some stats at PFF that were like, there were several weeks where I would look at this where they faced the fewest blitzes in FBS in that week, and yet their quarterback was pressured the most times yeah. in FBS. And like I know he's dropping back a lot, but like holy, like that shouldn't be possible. I don't it's, know if I can cuss on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's not even just the lack of blitzes, because like it's even less than the like a regular four man rush. It was right. like three man. They three. saw the most three, three right. man rushes. Right. I would imagine. I mean, definitely in our database from 2014 on, but you would imagine in the history of college football also. Yes. Um, and when they played Texas A and M. I remember there were at least five different times where AM rushed three and where whichever poor soul was at quarterback at the time, I forget if it was Costello or uh <laughs> Rogers. Or Rogers. Guy, yeah. But he was running for his life yeah. within one point eight seconds of the snap with a three man rush. And it's like like you might as well just put cones in front of him and just <laughs> right. like, please please don't come back here. <laughs> well, I, I, I made that joke. I made a joke on Twitter like, I don't know, a couple months ago because they were so bad, right? And I was like, and, and me and Deontay on this podcast for six months now have talked about it's over, the air raid's done, like forget about it. Like you, you just don't even think about it um, because it doesn't like vibe well with where we see kind of football going. It's, it's just like it happened and had its place. You know, the super spread one back, you know, two, two slots, whatever, had its place, but it's over, like forget about it. But then you go and you watch Nevada with Hal Mummy's son as the offensive coordinator, and they're ripping it. They're like throwing, throwing for like 500 yards a game, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, never mind. Maybe it's not. Maybe the air raid's not completely done. Right. Yeah. Is might anyone? Not, is anyone dead, still running it though? Right. Uh, like, do, do you do you consider Deontay anybody other than Leach to be running like the air raid? I do, and unfortunately, it happens <laughs> at my favorite school, and I have to just <laughs> suffer through this every week. Because Graham Harrell is definitely still ah, a yes, big, big yes, believer yes. Which makes sense. true which makes air sense. raid, which I understand. Yes. Like, And part of it is me just being like the turn my nose up, blue blood college football program fan. Um, you know, we're above this type of thing. I will not run from that. I 1000% accept the fact that that's part of me. It's not dead, but there is a certain part of it. Like when the air raid's not working, 
it is hard to watch. Same with like the triple option. Like if you play a defense that really knows how to stop the triple option, that is not a fun watch at all. And no, those are always the offenses that I that I kind of judge, you know, as the same because they are very niche. You know, if we're talking about the purest forms and, you know, defenses that can stop it, they give it a really hard time. And when it's rolling, but when it's rolling, you know, you think, well, why doesn't everybody do this? You know, and I've been I've been there. Last year's Army Navy game, a great example of this. Mm-hmm. Army and Navy, their coaches will tell you that the absolute biggest nightmare to play is the other because they know how to play against that option. Uh, everyone pretends that the on-field content of an Army Navy game is like the greatest thing ever, and I think people do it to project how much they love the troops. Like people absolutely do that. Look, the tradition around Army Navy, the tailgate scene, the pageantry, love that. That that is legitimately wonderful. It's a great rivalry. You don't have to lie. You don't have to insult the troops by lying to them that watching Army and Navy's defenses hold the op- the opposing flex bones to like 3.1 yards per carry in, in a 6-3 game is good. We don't have to lie about that. There's a lot of reporters who lie about that year in and year out. And don't get me wrong. There are some good games between those teams. But uh, yeah, liars. Just yeah. complete liars. The best thing about the Army-Navy game on the field is the fact that CBS can't stretch it out into a four-and-a-half-hour production because the game literally happens too fast. Yeah, that's it's bad. No, honestly, it's and, and it's funny because, you know, watching those offenses generally is super fun. Um, and then they play against each other, and like you said, it's, it's pretty rough. Absolutely. I think there were some times yeah. where, you know, during that long Navy winning streak that, you know, Army was just so bad that... It, it, they, they could they could roll and you saw some nice plays offensively but honestly the past five years it's been it's been it's been no good I, another example of the air raid is what happened in Baylor last year with Larry Fedora going there and you know you could argue you know is Charlie Brewer good is not good whatever but like that's it was a one-year thing with Fedora like Aranda brought him in it didn't work out he's already gone and I, they're going to 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 Jeff Grimes, who obviously was a hot name because of what he did at at BYU, but it's it's kind of a completely yeah. different offense. Um, you know what he did at BYU compared to what Fedora is kind of still running an air raid type of style, and it was just a one year thing, and now he's already gone. Yeah, I think the last thing I'll say, you know, before we move on on that is that, that one's a little bit difficult for me to parse whether or not that's an air raid issue or a Larry Fedora issue. <laughs> That, that that's yes. kind of that's kind of the way that I'm looking at that one. Yeah, especially the look you look at how North Carolina has like come out of nowhere, and you know their record like they were like seven and six two years ago, and like and they I think probably had like nine ten wins um, last year, but like just uh, right after Larry Fedora is gone, all of a sudden North Carolina and Mac Brown have have kind of rebounded, and he's made some really good coaching hires too. In these uncertain times. Life is full of questions like, when should I start thinking about life insurance? But however difficult these questions may be, Western and Southern can help you answer them. Backed by over 130 years of experience, together we can look ahead to leave the unknown behind. Western and Southern Financial Group, life insurance, retirement, and investments. Compensated endorser, products issued by member companies of Western and Southern Financial Group, Cincinnati, Ohio. I want you guys to remember that if you are listening to this uh, PFF podcast, we have other great podcasts on our 
PFF Podcast Network, which covers, of course, the NFL, fantasy football, and the show College. So uh, you can recap the NFL Draft with PFF Mike and PFF Austin on Two for One Drafts, um, probably one of the best podcasts out there, in my opinion. You can check out Ian Harditz's Fantasy Football Podcast and get a leg up on your league. I'm going to need it next year because I finished very poorly uh, last season in fantasy football and get all your 2021 betting content with the PFF forecast another great, great podcast. So um, a lot of podcasts on the network. Make sure you tune into all of them. Um, okay. So um, I'm an LSU fan. Um, Alex, you're a Pitt and Maryland fan. Yeah, I would say so. Okay. Uh, grew up with Pitt and then you know, still care about them. And I would say I picked up, Maryland when I had the uh, the misfortune of being a Maryland football fan uh, <laughs> when I went to school there. And, and Deontay, you are a, uh, a Clemson fan, right? That's correct? I'm not... Clemson, Oklahoma, USC fan. If that's, <laughs> you know, like everybody puts the Abbeys like the Lakers, the Yankees. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, that, yeah. that's, that's kind of how I look at it, too. If you're a powerhouse, I, I watch you. All right, so let's start. Let's just go around like your favorite moments, your favorite season, I should say. Uh, or moment from your favorite team. Uh, we can go one at a time, however you guys want. I'll let you take that first, Alex. Uh, I don't have a favorite for Maryland, uh, other than I guess the time that we played Texas in a home and home yeah. and went two and zero because yeah. that's pretty fucking funny uh, to, to, to do that. Uh, pretty pretty funny. Uh, I think for Pitt, my favorite moment as a Pitt fan, uh, aside from the entirety of Larry Fitzgerald's time at Pitt which I'll get to, uh, was the 2007 Pitt-West Virginia game when Pitt was uh, under 500 and West Virginia was number two in the country in Morgantown. All they needed to do was win. They were going to play for the BCS championship and Pitt beat them 13 to nine. Those numbers are etched in every Pitt fans uh, and, and West Virginia fans psyche, I think, for the rest of eternity. I was able a couple of years, many years after that, uh, to do a story about uh, maybe 10 years after that, uh, where I talked to a lot of guys on both teams, some coaches, Dave Wanstead, Owen Schmidt, uh, and the pain with which like Owen Schmidt still talked about that game in 2017 when we talked for it. In a way, I mean, I, I felt bad for him. Like it, it was clearly searing for him even 10 years later, but it also is kind of what's great about college football. You could care that much about uh, about 60 minutes of play that, that much later. Um, so I would go with, and because I'm a spiteful hater, uh, <laughs> The moment when my sub 500 team uh, kept their rival out of the biggest win of their lives. What what was the 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 Wanstead years like for a Pitt fan? Um, better than some other years, for I sure. would say. I mean, he wasn't a horrendous Pitt coach. I think that he honestly was probably around the median Pitt coach. Like you know, if you're if you're Pitt, I think a reasonable expectation, especially in those days, was that you would be in the upper half of the Big East and maybe make a charge at it in the right years. Uh, he never did win the Big East, but he got close. Uh, I think that the year, maybe it was 2009, that Cincinnati with Brian Kelly uh, and with like Zach Pike and Armand Bins and various other. They had some, I they had remember some guys. those names. Yeah, those, they had, those Cincinnati they guys. had some really good teams over the past they, 15 years. They had some guys. Marty Gilliard uh, was mm. on that team, I I believe. Though I could be I could be remembering some guys and conflating them, but uh, that was like you know, a pretty solid coaching job and Pitt was going to go to overtime with Cincinnati that year if the holder didn't botch an extra point or if the defense had just gotten a stop after that. So 
he was okay. I mean, he's he's like the most Yinzer guy in the history of Yinzers. Oh, I mean, is he he's, from? He's from Pittsburgh. Oh, oh yeah, he's oh, from okay, Pittsburgh. Okay, I mean, sense. he is like he is like a walking coleslaw and French fry sandwich of a person. That's how I would describe him. I mean, he could not be more of a Pittsburgher. <laughs> um, but you know, at the end of the day, I think it had been the better part of a decade, and you're not winning much, so. It's time to go and hire someone else who also won't win much because that's the way college football works. That's correct. All right, hey, Deontay. For me, um, you know, for the national championships and the great runs that USC has had still to this day, and it probably will not ever change, my favorite moment by far was the 2008 Notre Dame-USC game. All right, so just to run through the box score briefly, <laughs> Notre Dame. Four total first downs all game long. Total yardage, 91. Okay. Yards per play, 1.9. USC almost had more yards in penalties than Notre Dame had in the game. Okay. And that was like, and at that point, and the reason why it's such like a big moment for me as a fan is that this was the Jimmy Clausen is the number one quarterback Mm -hmm. in the draft hype season. All year long, the entire preseason, everybody talked about he can win the Heisman. He's going to return Notre Dame to what they used to be. I believe this is still Charlie Weiss's Notre Dame era. So he's also getting all of the off the Belichick tree hype and he's going to be the next big offensive coach. And the fact that they came in there and caught like the most pissed off USC team. I don't know if, if everybody remembers that 2018. That was just as talented as the two teams that went to back to back national titles. And the only thing that got in their way was a Thursday night trip to Corvallis, Oregon. Corvallis, yeah, man. Not a place you want to go on a weeknight. Dude, Not like, a place you want to go on a weeknight. So funnily enough, the fact that this is my favorite moment, that is easily my lowest moment as a USC fan. Like that was, <laughs> it was fresh off the week after they destroyed Ohio State. So everybody that's a USC fan is just at their absolute peak. You know, this is like nexus of shit talking USC fans and mm. to go get their heart broken then. And Couldn't beat the real OSU. Unfortunately. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's definitely the peak. Am I wrong to think that USC has two seasons where they are like a loss to Oregon State away from, from being undefeated? Was that 2004 as well? Or who, who did they Ooh, lose to in 04? I think 04 was UCLA. I believe hmm. 2004 was UCLA. I, remember, I feel like I, I in my head I see two of them. But anyways, yeah, that's that's a... That's a, no, 2004 was a championship year. I, I apologize. I Maybe you're thinking of 2003 or 2006. Um, yeah, that 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 team is like loaded. Like it's, uh, it's, it, it is 2003, and they lost to Cal. Ah, uh, Cal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, the the, the OA team is uh, absolutely loaded. As I go um, go through the the roster. The interesting thing is a lot of them didn't pan out as much. Maybe in the NFL, you're looking like a um, Matt Khalil obviously played in the NFL for a bit. You know, the receivers didn't really do much. I mean, I remember Patrick Turner was like uh, hyped up to be like the dude. Obviously, Mark Sanchez didn't really do anything. Obviously, played a few years. But yeah, it's not a Clay Matthews kid. That's fine. Cushing. Defense is pretty good. But yeah. Yeah. Um, Everson Griffin, wow. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, but, and is that like the, that's the end, right? Was there another I mean, great USC team? If we're talking team about this? like peak, where as far as talent goes, yes, that was the end. That was by far the last year that they had that much NFL talent. 
on their team. They had obviously like the suspension year um, with Lane Kiffin, where I think they went like 10 and two and beat or beat a really good Oregon team. I think that was probably like the best. And then they obviously had the Rose Bowl year with Sam Darnold. But as far as talent goes, yeah, 2008 was, that was it. That was the, definitely the hard line in terms of like USC being that near Bama-esque, Clemson-esque, Ohio State-esque level of talent that we see today. All right. So for me, like, obviously the answer is 2019 LSU, whatever. That's too obvious. So uh, two that I'll, the one that sticks out in my mind because it's like kind of kind of cemented my LSU fandom is LSU Georgia 2003, where Skylar Green catches the game winning touchdown with like a minute left. Great game, two really good teams. You know, Saban um, had turned around LSU. Rick was probably in his first few years there at Georgia too, and obviously he went on to do a, do a really good job. Um, it's funny you talk about Owen Schmidt. Um, not kind of getting over that game for West Virginia. And I feel like, you know, I talked to David Pollack and I don't want to put words in his mouth at all, but it feels like, you know, he probably gets asked about that game a lot too. And that's a game that he'll never get over because they felt like they should have won the game and, and the kicker missed like four field goals and they should have won the game. And of course LSU wins it. And even though they lost to Florida a couple of weeks later, because they don't forgot how to cover running backs out of the backfield, um, they end up winning the national championship because of all those missed field goals. So yeah, that kind of cemented my. That was such. I had a broken arm. I broke my arm playing football. I got sacked and broke my arm. And uh, and yeah. And the other one, moment that I'll say, I, I put it under favorite moments, but it's just like a moment, just a general moment, is the 2011 national championship game. I don't think, and I know all LSU fans feel the same way. Who were like watching at home, and maybe you were even in the Superdome that night watching me play Alabama. Like the feeling of helplessness. <laughs> like, yes. I don't think you, you that'll ever leave me because, like, yeah, it's like, oh, of course, I didn't I don't play. I don't, um, you know what I mean? Not on the field to help them, but like, you still feel like you could, you're, there, there's something that you're a part of this whole situation. And like, um, who do you think felt more helpless? Alabama fans watching their kicker miss 17 field goals in the regular season version of that game, which they lost nine to six, or you guys watching, uh, which was it Eddie Lacy, which, which big, big Alabama running back was it? Who was just running over you that game? Was that Trent Trent Richardson? Richardson? I think that was either Trent Richardson or Eddie Lacy. Probably Trent Richardson. Yeah. Um, those two, those two are, are mix upable running backs in terms of how they treated LSU and the rest of the, <laughs> the SEC. Yeah. yeah. My, uh, my closest friend is an LSU fan. He actually came up to my place when we were in high school to watch that game. And that was, that was rough. That's I, we have, I was probably the quietest watching experience I think I've ever had in a football game. How do you yeah. console somebody when he's watching his offense and not be able to cross midfield? Right. Like Najee Harris, like would make me feel helpless if I was an opposing fan, but like he was, would make you feel helpless in like the nice way. Like kind of like Le'Veon Bell, like he'd go a little slow. He'd he'd hurdle you or something. Those old school Bama running backs of the early Saban years was just like, this is violent. This isn't fun. Yeah. This isn't even fun. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like, what are we doing here? And and the funny thing is, it's like, it was bound to happen because of exactly what you said about the nine to six game. Alabama was a better team that day. Like, like L- 2011 LSU is an incredible team that will never get its due because of the 21-0 loss. Uh-huh. Um, 
but Alabama was better that night in Tuscaloosa, and it didn't shouldn't have gone to overtime. And you know, you have the you have the all the the dropped interceptions, and you have the the Eric Reed interception. That yeah, okay, it was an interception, but it's like a 50-50 thing that you know if, if the ref sees it a different way, then Alabama has a ball in like the one yard line or a touchdown, and they score, and that's it. Like so, like yeah, I I I think like I know we don't want to believe it as LSU fans, but yeah, that uh, Alabama was a better team that year, even though twenty eleven LSU was was dominant for, for, you know, 99% of that season. Oh, Seth, you're speaking in a way as though LSU fans don't know how to get to Canada, sir. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd be careful how we, with how we posit that, that 2011 season. <laughs> I look at, I'm saying it, it was like, they were awesome. Even with, with, you know, I mean, you know, the quarterback play wasn't even great that year. It was okay. And, and, and they were still, they were still a, an incredibly dominant team. So I'm, I'm, uh, I don't know. It's just it, 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 Alabama was inevitable. Alabama is inevitable, um, and I think we gotta remember that. Uh, okay, so um, going from that to our favorite kind of college football moments that don't involve our favorite team, uh, Alex, do, do you have a do you have a something for us? Yeah, I think a few kind of teams and moments that I just really really have enjoyed in my growth with college football. Uh, 2006 Rutgers, even though it was Greg Schiano um, and Ray Rice, and I mean, in different ways, those are unsavory figures. Um, I think that they were a great example of how if enough things break right, aka if a bunch of the good teams from your conference leave your conference uh, right at the time when you have a bunch of upperclassmen who are pretty good, then even if you are a historically moribund program like like Rutgers, you can be really, really good. And I think they went 11-2 and two or something that year um, and finished tied at the top of the Big East. Pretty fun. Uh, 2013 Auburn, just like everybody else, I think that's maybe the most lovable, fun team ever in college football that didn't win a national championship uh, or maybe even that did that, you know, including those teams that did because you had not only uh, the prayer at Jordan air, but you had the uh, kick six. You had the incredibly fun uh, face off with, with Jameis and Florida state, which like they just came out on the wrong side of you had Trey Mason, who was like a really fun running back uh, for that Auburn team. And you had a DB playing quarterback. So like lots of fun things, I think, were afoot with 2013 Auburn. CFL all-star Nick yeah. Marshall playing quarterback. Absolutely. Put some respect on that name. <laughs> uh, and also, I, I love 2020 Coastal Carolina. I think, Seth, you wrote probably the best article of anyone about how their offense forced defenses into lose-lose predicaments, you know, where either you could bring down a safety to avoid getting crushed on these kind of speed options, uh, or you could get just roasted. Um, or a, But if you did that, you would just get roasted by Grayson McCall and, and Javon Hiley and some of their – they had a really good tight end uh, whose name eludes me who gets down the field really well. So, like – they were just a ton of fun and they played at the beach. It's a shame it happened during a pandemic year, but uh, they were a ton of fun to watch. And I think that I will always, always remember 2020 Coastal as a really fun team. Yeah, that's, that's a really good one. Uh, favorite season? Could be just game. Team. I actually put for my list, I put just individual games. So, like, I mean, the 2013 Auburn team is the one that stands out. Like, that was probably like, aside from watching USC, that was probably the most fun I've had watching a team throughout the season, especially because it felt like the wins got more ridiculous as the year went on. <laughs> That, that was definitely fun, you know, and then to see, you know, Trey Mason's profile rise to where he was a legitimate Heisman candidate, 
because of it, you know, and he was a very fun running back to watch. Uh, favorite moment? Sorry, Michigan fans, because I really do love the program. But that 2018 game when they were all riding high and thought that they had a chance to win a national championship, and then they go into they go into Buckeye Stadium and give up 62 points to the Buckeyes. Like that to me was even more enjoyable than watching the overtime game. Ugh, that was spot. crazy. That, that I remember. Ugh. <laughs> I was uh, I had no I had no horse in that race, but I remember my cousin was getting married that Saturday, so I'm like missing this game, and I'm like checking my phone from the wedding venue, like what's what's going on here, and I looked and it was like I saw a fifty, a 50 something on Ohio State score in like the third quarter or whatever the hell it was, and I was like, oh my god, and then I realized it was somehow even worse than the box score laid out and. Yeah, I mean, they should have won that game. Like, Michigan was a better team that year, and it just didn't happen. Really tough. That's the I, the, the the man covered the mesh game, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, okay, so I'll start with, like, cause there's, like, some obvious ones. But they're just, like, they're so entrenched in my in my in how I feel about college football. Is like, the USC Texas Rose Bowl. I mean, it's just like the it's that's the best game of all time, right? Like that's the NCAA said that game never happened. So I don't know <laughs> what you're talking about. Um, like I think for for people of our generation, like that's the game, right? That is the game is is Vince Young versus Reggie Bush, um, and but uh, then I'll also say the Fiesta Bowl, which I, the the Boise State Oklahoma Fiesta Bowl, which is, I think. That might be above it just because like when we want to believe in like the the myth, the folklore of college football of of underdogs and like, you know, teams out of nowhere and blah, 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 and comebacks and upsets and stuff like that. Then that then that game is is number one for me. Again, it's like my formative years because it's I'm like 17 or 18 or something like that. And and so these games stick with me. And that game is incredible because you have. Uh, a huge underdog coming out and taking like a 24 to 10 lead or something like that with Boise State, Jared Zambransky and some receivers who maybe got a sniff in the NFL, like Legadu 9A or something like that. And like um, Oklahoma coming back with a quarterback that I looked this up. I, his name was Thompson. I don't even, I never re- don't remember this guy one bit. Um, and they come back and then Zambransky throws a pick six with a minute and a half left. Only for the hook and lateral, and then the Statue of Liberty to come in overtime after Adrian Peterson scored on the first play of overtime, and then Boise State scored on a fourth down and over. Like it's crazy. It makes no sense how good a game that could be. And then my third one is a recent one. It's honestly like I, I kind of forget about it sometimes. But Georgia, uh, Oklahoma in the Rose Bowl, and then in the semifinal a few years ago. It's insane. Yeah, it's an it was an amazing game. game. Honestly, it's an amazing game. If people have not gone back to rewatch it, you there are a lot of exciting plays in that game that you have forgotten about. It's a great game from start to finish, too. Do, do you do either of you have like the game from your? Do you guys remember your first like college football game, either one that you went to or one that you remember on TV or something like that? I don't remember my first game, but I remember like as a block like my earliest Mm -hmm. games which were at Pitt Stadium which they demolished uh when the football team moved to Heinz Field uh but you could go down and walk like on the track during the game like on the very very far reaches of the field so you're pretty far away from the action but like I'm four or five I'm thinking this is the coolest thing in the world so I was down there you know every week and I had a great time 
Um, I mean, USC didn't really get good until like my preteen years. So like as far as favorite team goes, the, it was a USC-Oklahoma game. That was probably the one where I was like, wow, like I like a team that won a national title and won a national title like going away. That was probably the first real moment where I was like, yeah, I'm in. Like they definitely had me hooked. That season, capping it off with that win, definitely had me hooked forever. Okay, let's go into individuals. Um, favorite player on your favorite team? You can name one, you can name 100. Uh, go for it. So Pitt has punched above its weight class in terms of just having some absolutely incredible players, I think. I mean, Pitt, uh, I can make a pretty compelling case. I mean, not perfect, but one could argue that they've had the best receiver, best corner, and best defensive tackle of this century in the NFL. And that's been true at, at least in certain years. That's been true uh, with Larry Fitzgerald, Aaron Donald, and Darrell Rivas, you know, at one given time or another, I would argue. Uh, Donald was incredible. I think Pitt fans were, were some of the few who realized exactly what, what they had when he was there. I mean, he was just completely destructive, uh, particularly his last year at Pitt. Same with Revis. Um, but Larry Fitzgerald's the best college football player I've ever seen. Um, seeing him in person, you felt like you were seeing history, and you were. Uh, he was incredible because not only – I mean, the numbers speak for themselves. What he did to cornerback speaks for themselves. But he, he wasn't really – he wasn't a burner. He didn't jump that high. You know, he, he certainly was not like a big, big measurables guy. But he just had like incre- – he was pretty big, and he had really good hands. But he just had like – this weirdly great body control and like this way to manipulate space. And like, I think the most incredible play I ever saw him make was Pitt was playing Texas A&M one year, I think in 2003, early 2003. And it's a deep ball from Rod Rutherford to Larry Fitzgerald. The safety who's running with him, uh, it's, it's, it's the safety at this point because the corner has been long, long dispatched. Um, And the safety has outside leverage. The throw is to the outside. And Fitzgerald can't see the ball because he's looking towards the inside of the field. And somehow he senses where the ball is, like in a way that might have been pass interference, but like no one could ever see it in real time, just like somehow flips the leverage and puts himself on the outside. And then like with a millisecond to catch the ball, sees it into his outside arm um, and catches a touchdown. Completely impossible catch. Should like defied laws of physics and... It was amazing. And he also, you know, regularly abused corners on fades, like goal line fades, bad play, unless it's him, uh, because it was a guarantee. D'Angelo Hall probably still has nightmares about what Larry Fitzgerald did to him a couple years in a row uh, when Pitt played Virginia Tech. So yeah, that guy, I'll I'll never see anything like it again in college football. I mean, Devontae Smith last year was not as good as Larry Fitzgerald at Pitt, uh, right. which is hard, you know, incredible to think, but it's it's true. Yeah. I mean, based on who my favorite program is, I don't know, at least in my lifetime, I don't know if I'm even allowed to have an answer other than Reggie Bush. Like, well, he's not an answer for non-LSU players. It's, so. it's a, I, I could give other guys that I maybe enjoyed more as I grew up, but it would be disingenuous of me to say that like my favorite player during my time as a USC fan is not Reggie Bush, especially like his junior year. And I think we were talking about it um, in our group chat sets before, you know, maybe a week or so ago. The guy averaged a first down every time he touched the football. That's for a running back. That is unprecedented. Like there, there is no other point of reference for that. You know, as a receiver, as a returner, as a running back, easily the most electric player I've seen in college football. So like that, that's it. You know, everybody else kind of falls beneath him. I really liked Robert Woods. 
because mm-hmm. he was one of the best receivers in the conference and in the country, basically, from the moment that he stepped on the field, you know, from his freshman year all the way through. Marquise Lee was another guy I really enjoyed. And then obviously as a defensive player, I, I love watching Keith Rivers and Ray Maluga. Like those two were all were awesome to me as well. Um, okay, my question for both of you is we have two kind of different tiers of, of, of like quarterbacks on, on, on like USC versus Pitt. So like who was your favorite quarterback? You know, you mentioned like a, a, a forgotten man in, in Rod Rutherford earlier. Like who was your favorite like Pitt quarterback? Um Obviously, we're talking about guys who were good college football players compared to USC. Who was your favorite quarterback in USC, Deontay? Obviously, the level is a, is different, yeah, right? We're thinking a little different, guys. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Rod Rutherford and Tyler yeah. Palco were fun. Yeah, at Palco. Pitt. Uh, Tyler Palco was, I think they were both Pittsburgh guys. Um, they both you know, loved being Pitt players. They both put up good numbers. They were fun to watch. They could both run around a little bit. Um, so I loved watching both of them. And you know, it'd be nice if Pitt could recapture some of that with their current quarterback, but that uh, hasn't, hasn't my, seemed my, to be in my, the My uh, Heisman sleeper pick, Kenny Pickett. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, you said it. You said it. Huh? <laughs> right. My favorite, man, my favorite quarterback is just tough. It might be Sam Darnold. Or oh, if for no reason <laughs> other than I was just so entertained. And I think just the same, same person I mentioned earlier, Justice Muscata gave me this idea and I've never been able to unsee it. He plays quarterback like a linebacker, which is a position that he played in high yeah. school and through youth. Like his entire idea of playing quarterback is just like throw, make throw. Like there's really not a whole lot, a whole mm-hmm. lot more to a thought process, especially at USC. Like it was very much like I'm just going to throw it because I have the arm to do it. And whoever catches, whoever catches the ball obviously deserved it because they're the one with it. But I don't really care. You know, I'm making the throw because that's how I feel. Um, he was probably the most fun to watch. Um, most talented in my time was probably probably Carson Palmer. Yeah, I think so too. Especially college, like health, still healthy, young Carson Palmer is still probably the most gifted quarterback I've ever seen come through USC. I, I, I took it a step further with Darnold because I said like he looks like a linebacker who they gave Wildcat reps to in, in like <laughs> Wednesday practice and then said, yep. okay, now you're actually the starter. Exactly. <laughs> uh, okay, for, for LSU, I mean, again, I, Joe Burrow's number one, like whatever, we get it. Um, my favorite player growing up was Skylar Green, the guy who I talked about scored a touchdown against Georgia in 2003. Um, you know, a, in a sense, a poor man's version of, of these great punt returner slot receivers um, like Deshaun Jackson and, and, and Devin Hester, maybe stuff like that. Um, but I really loved him. And uh, <laughs> Tyron Matthew is the best player I've ever seen up until Joe Burrow. Um, I've never seen a guy affect the game from the positions that he played. Um, you know, like visually where it's like, you know, I, I like number four is probably like Glenn Dorsey, the great defensive lineman from LSU. But, you know, when you're watching the games on the broadcast film, defensive linemen affect the game visually and like DBs and linebackers, there's usually, there's often like, a, an absence of them on TV is probably a good thing sometimes. Um, with Matthew it was the opposite. I mean, he just made plays but everywhere man he's, he's batting down the screen pass against uh, sorry that like the bubble screen against West Virginia he's coming on the sack and, and fumble return against Kentucky he's got the punt returns against Arkansas and and Georgia and Georgia in this like it's just non-stop he's got the he's got the tackle and then strip against I think Texas A&M like it's just that's Oregon too on a punt return he gets the strip against Oregon that he, yeah. that he takes in the end zone uh, like on, on national television like 
to me that that was just I never seen you and, and you know LSU had such great you know it's DBU right so you you have like uh, on the same team you have Patrick Peterson you have all these really great Morris Claiborne all these really great players and I love Corey Webster growing up but like Matthew just did stuff that I never seen that I didn't think it was possible to do it every game he made a like every game he was involved in the outcome of the game I think that was that was special. So let's go on to the next, which is favorite player on your non-favorite team. Like I said, Reggie Bush for me is number one, Alex. Couple for me. Uh, I, I mean, I just kind of talked about how much I enjoyed Pitt beating him, but Pat White mm. was on on the biggest rival back when at West Virginia. An incredibly fun college quarterback uh, who really could do everything. I mean, I think he was ahead of his time. I think now every team wants a Pat White. Um, and Pat White was, you know, sort of along with Vince Young, I think, heralding that new era of like, if your quarterback can't do at least a bad impression of Pat White, then he's just not going to be very valuable. Um, you have to at least be able to fake it a little bit. Uh, and Braylon Edwards at Michigan was oh, tons of fun. God, loved watching, loved watching him play play football when he was in college. Oof. Favorite favorite player from a non favorite team is an LSU guy. It's Patrick Peterson. Okay, like especially like. And a lot of, I mean, the, the kind of the common thread through this is like as I was going through high school, you know, as an athlete, people that I really looked at and kind of wanted to model myself around. Um, it's Patrick Peterson for sure. Like tech, like to be as huge as he is physically and still be as like technically proficient, still be as good of a player. He was a great punt returner. He could have played receiver at LSU if he wanted to. Um, like. That was like the entire package as a corner. And, you know, aside from Derek Stingley, he was a guy that I'm very fond of. Like, I hadn't really seen another corner that played outside. So not like a Mika Fitzpatrick who's playing in the slot. But yeah. to see a guy Four-time outside, right, Some a guy who was like 6'1", 215 pounds, to be that size, run a 4'3", and be able to like really follow number one receivers, like his games against A.J. Green, his games against Julio Jones. Yeah. Those are all like iconic performances as I was growing up to me. Uh, a couple more that I that I thought of, Devin Hester when he returned the kick the opening kickoff of the season basically against Florida, um, that sh- I, I'll never forget that it was just magic. And here here's one and it's it's kind of LSU related and it's Roy Williams from Texas and most of that is because of what he did to LSU in like the 2002 Cotton Bowl or 2003 oh, some Cotton bad Bowl. stuff bad stuff. Yeah. And I was just yeah. rewatching some highlights of him and yeah. yeah he was a man he was a man and and. He might be in the, we have a category coming up about NFL busts. Um, but uh, yeah, he might be in that category too because he was magnificent. Absolutely couldn't, couldn't tackle him. Uh, soft hands. Uh, he had everything uh, that you want at a receiver. Yeah, he, it's tough that he played for the Lions and so he gets remembered like that yeah. um, because what he was at Texas was really something. Yeah. All right, let's get into um, favorite venue. So I haven't been to a ton of college football games, but I've been to enough to give you give you a little bit of a list. Um, but Alex, what are the best places you've been to watch a game? You know, I've I've done an LSU night game before, and the tailgating leading up to it that was I think a unique college football experience. I don't think I'll ever eat that well at a sporting event ever again. Uh, I think my favorite stadium itself, like just outside of the experience of the game day and everything, might be the Big House in Michigan. Um, because I don't think you appreciate the architecture of it. It's it's dug into the ground completely. I mean, like there's very, very small parts of it that are above ground, like the scoreboard and maybe a couple of seats. But like you just walk into this bowl in the earth and it's 
unbelievably massive and it kind of is like it, the experience of walking in through the concourse is just like really something because you're like what the hell how like how did this get here um it's it's a very cool architectural feat uh there are not uh, i'm not sure how many but i imagine there's there's a, a small number of places where they have these bowls that are dug into the ground and like like so i've been to Mich- michigan that's one of the few places i've been i got to see them the last time they beat Ohio State, which is kind of cool to think about. So I was like 1960. Yeah, it was 1965. Um, okay, nice. I, I was 18. Um, and um, I saw them play their one, I think the first ever night game at Michigan Stadium against oh, Penn wow. State, which was, yeah. I was actually, I, I would say, a probably cooler experience. Um, yeah. Because, I, you know, because it was the first one, it might have been the second one, but because it was like one of the, the few ones that they've ever done there, they did a whole <laughs> show out of it. And, and it was super fun. And but the other bowl that I've been to is Yale. Uh, Yale is like you're walking up and like you just see like the top two rows, yeah. And then yeah. you get there and it's dug in. Yeah. And now that, that, that's always fun because and I've said this before, like you, you do feel like you're going back in time watching a Yale Harvard game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you do. You Be, do. Or yeah. either going back in time or watching like a high school game sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the only other one I've been to, I saw Miami play Wake Forest in the old Orange Bowl before they mm-hmm. tore it down. And that and that you know. The palm trees, uh, you know, the end of the horseshoe is cool. I mean, that's an iconic kind of visual for college football. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, yeah, those those are basically the three places I've been. Hopefully, I'll, I'll, I can make it more now that there's uh, uh, less travel restrictions next year. Yeah, let's do it. Um, okay, and the, the last question we have, uh, Deontay, uh, we lost Deontay's uh but uh uh so we'll go on to the last um question which is the surefire nfl hall of famers that you watched in college that you knew that you knew were going to be hall of famers who ended up being busts in the nfl uh what's your list so i thought josh rosen was going to be good i was one of those people (laughs) so did i and I think the reason I probably saw the five stars, that was probably part of it. But the biggest reason was that I blamed UCLA having no offensive line, no run game to speak of helping him. Jim Moore problems basically at UCLA. I thought those were the reasons that he never really totally broke through in college. And it turns out that if you don't break through in college, it's pretty unlikely that you're going to break through in the NFL. Um, the obvious exception to that, the new one is is Josh Allen and... I think there could be a long conversation about what it means for my worldview of football scouting that he turned out to be good Um, because he really is a historic exception. There's never been anyone like him who has been the seventh best quarterback in the Mountain West and then gone and been (laughs) been a pro bowler. But um, in general, unless unless you're Josh Allen, that policy mostly still holds that I guess if you're not – if you don't do much in college, if you can't do much at UCLA, even if your offensive line is bad – it's pretty unlikely that you're going to suddenly put it all together in Arizona or Miami or where wherever. And uh, at this point, I think we can confidently say that the dream the so. dream is dead. I think so. we can confidently say that. Yeah, the yeah. funny thing about Allen is like now it's going to start a trend of people like talking about, well, just wait for his third year. Like with all with every quarterback, like I think we're going to see like with Drew Locke this year, or Daniel Jones this year. Like, hey, just wait for his third year, and then we'll be everything will be everything's going to be fine he'll just make that jump and it's like that's it's just he's such an outlier um yeah it's good that daniel jones is bad because that would require me to really reassess some things um (laughs) 
because I mean, Daniel Jones was like Josh Allen in terms of like, what on earth is happening here? Like, why is this happening? And fortunately, he is bad. So uh, we don't have to worry about that. Uh, I have two running backs, and I think running backs kind of are are the like if we if we if we pulled a million people, I think running backs would probably be the most common responses of players who we thought were going to be like superstars in the NFL and weren't just because mm-hmm. of the nature of the position. Um, but the two I had is Leonard Fournette, obviously. I mean, the, this guy was the best thing I've ever seen play football. And then going back a little bit, Darren McFadden, and he, he who ended up having like a. A, a good NFL career, like an NFL career that I think a lot of people would take because um, he played in for, for many years. But I mean, at Arkansas, he was special. He was different. There's different, like, you know, punt returner, kick returner, I believe. No, I think Felix Jones actually was a kick returner. But anyways, um, big play after big play after big play on that, on that, uh, on those Arkansas teams with Felix Jones. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the early Wildcat stuff was, special and and i thought he was and he looked good he wore number five like all the great running backs did and and yeah i was a big fan of uh, mcfadden the other guy i'm going to say is teddy bridgewater i love teddy bridgewater Uh absolutely could not get enough he was so polished so clean so technical um and yeah obviously the the knee injury didn't help but i also kind of believe he probably even without it is never there was always going to be a ceiling for teddy um, and he, you know, that, so that's, I wouldn't say he's not a bust for sure. Like kind of Fournette and McFadden, but, yeah. um, but he never really was the Teddy that I, that I hoped he would be. I, I always felt like I held on to that one for a while, you know, like even up to like last year, yeah. like, like yeah. it's, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And it didn't happen. It sucks, but you know, life goes on. Oh, this is a tough one for me. Um, I mean, Reggie Bush obviously would be an answer. Um, I heard you mention Seth, and it's true. Like, probably feel that way about a lot. Uh, you know, the running backs, especially from like my era as a child. Um, but for me, the only other two I can think about would be like Percy Harvin. That's mm. definitely somebody that I was convinced was going to be like a break the NFL type of player. I think you mentioned too, Darren McFadden. You know, I thought he was going to be like that utility guy that could do everything just like Percy Harvin. It just didn't work out that way in his career. I mean, and health is a health is a factor. It's unfortunate, but sometimes that's yeah. just the difference. You know, whether or not it works out for a guy. All right, um, there it is. That that was the uh, PFF College Football Podcast with Alex Kirshner and Deontay Lee. Um, Alex, where can the people find your work? Uh, the people can find me on Twitter at Alex underscore Kirshner, K-I-R-S-H-N-E-R. would love to hang out with you there. Uh, you can read me at Slate.com. Um, and from other times to times, you can read me at Men's Journal or 538 uh, or any number of other places that um, hire me to write about sports. So I would love to love to hang out with you on the internet. All right, you hear that? Uh, go hang oh, out. Oh, and I have a podcast. I have a podcast. Thank you. Most importantly, <laughs> please subscribe uh, to Split Zone Duo. We would love to have you as well. Uh, you can also subscribe to their Patreon, which uh, gives you bonus content, which is very important. Too. Yes. Yes, that's at uh, splitzoneduo.com. All right. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, John. All right, there you go. That was the uh, PFF College Football Podcast with myself, Deontay Lee, and Alex Kirshner. Hope you guys liked it. And we'll be back next week um, continuing our series on the returning college football player as we're going to the defensive side of the ball with the defensive lineman with me and Anthony Tresh. So uh, stay tuned for that next week. Thanks a lot, and I'll see you guys later.